Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Okay. So, so far, if we'll just catch each other up, um, we've talked about the truth about what we learn about God from Genesis 1 through 11. We're going to learn more about God as we interact. So we start with this, the point of the pyramid is we, we look at God and then it's going to flow down. And then from God, we looked at what Jesus, how Jesus is seen and forecasted. And if you were here Sunday, how the foreshadowing or the pre-echo, if you will, of Jesus is heard throughout all of creation. So we spent two weeks focusing on creation itself in the first two chapters and what we saw about God, what we saw about Jesus, and then we talked about mankind. How did God create us? What did he create us for? What is the ideal? The world's telling us something different. We want to go back into Genesis and say, no, this is how God created me clearly. This is what God's desire for me is and design for me is. And when we get that figured out, then last week uh, we talked about sin and how sin came in to our relationship with God. And tonight I want to talk to you about judgment. And I know we're really happy and excited about that, but let's go ahead and talk about it. And the overarching theme, if I had to give one statement to this, um, I'll tell you a boring story. When I was doing my master's work, I was in a rhetorical criticism class. And we were studying uh, speeches and presentations and commercials and campaigns and just talking, uh, you know, political campaigns. We are just talking about the way rhetoric, the, the use of persuasion um, was, was found in all of these. And the professor gave us each an assignment on a historical character. And he said, I want you to come in and talk about the rhetorical devices they used in their most prominent work. It was a, it was a bunch of research we had to do. He said, you had a 25-minute presentation to do it. We came into class, Dr. Ling, we'll just explain it to you, Dr. Ling had had polio as a young man and was in a wheelchair, very, very bright, very, very bright man, Uh, not a Christian at all, and uh, politically he and I couldn't have been further apart, but he wheeled himself into class and he said, okay, who's going first? And he kind of looked around the room and said, did I not make any assignments? And we said no, and he said, okay, we're going to go by the alphabetical order. I was the first one at the top of the of the alphabet that day. There was no one, no A's and B's, just the C. And it was my turn. And he goes, are you ready? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, uh, how long did I say these were to be? And we were all kind of like, what's going on here? And we said, you told us 25 minutes. And he goes, no, oh, no, no, no. You have three minutes. <laughs> he said, you have three minutes to make the presentation. We're all looking at each other in absolute disbelief. And he said, I need to use the restroom. And so he wheeled himself down the hall. And he said, when I come back, be ready. And he made us take these, these papers that were 12 and 15 pages long, and he made us boil them down to two and three minute speeches. It was one of the best rhetorical devices you could ever teach someone to do. And here's what he told us, the class, because I started to go and, and he stopped me in the middle. He goes, are you frustrated? <laughs> Kinda. I said, why? And he said, I didn't know you were supposed to do this. And then he said something I'll never forget. And it's, it's made the biggest difference in the way I teach and preach. He said, if you can't tell me what you're going to say in three minutes, you can't tell me what you're going to say in 25 minutes. So, what are we going to learn tonight? We should not be surprised at how God responds to sin. That's the 22nd version of what I'm going to take an hour to talk about tonight, okay? 
So I've learned is if you don't know the target you're aiming for, you'll never hit anything meaningful. Tonight, understand when we talk about judgment, we should not be surprised at how God responds. Why? Because he told us. And if you see how sin affects the generations of Adam and Eve, what you're going to notice is God is incredibly consistent. The biblical word for it is faithful. He, he says what he means and he does what he says. So because of that, you can look at the word judgment and you can say, I don't want to talk about judgment. Nobody in the world wants to come to church to hear about judgment. But here's what I want to pose to you. We love a good judge, don't we? We love to know that if someone violates social mores, if someone breaks the law, we want to know that they're going to be held what? Accountable. How then can we look at a good judge and justice and as a nation praise that justice matters and then come in this place and not want to have an honest discussion about justice mattering? Because here's the truth for all of us. Well, it's the truth for me. See if it fits you. I want justice for you. I just don't want justice for me. I want grace and mercy for me. And I want justice for that idiot that cut me off in traffic. I was going through Carterville, and I always joke about Carterville, but I found out we have two Carterville police officers here, so I love Carterville. And uh, when you drive through Carterville, they don't, when 25 does not mean 30. 25 means 25. And this guy came up behind Braden and I after football practice, and we were coming through Carterville, and he was right on me. And that's my role, not his. So I said to B, hang on a second. And I just kind of pulled over to the side of the road, and he passed me by, and my son was in the car, so I pulled back out very gently and was going on the road, and he was, he'd gone whipping through town, and he didn't get past the Casey's when those little blue and red lights came on, and there was a moment of deep, deep satisfaction. <laughs> deep satisfaction inside of me (laughs) and because I'd been that guy before. (laughs) God's judgment is consistent, it's faithful, and here's the best part of it. It's been declared. See, I don't believe when I read my scripture that anyone's going to stand before God on the day of judgment and you realize that Christians and unbelievers will all stand before God in judgment, right? Can Can we get that fact straight? We're going to be judged for the good things we did. The others are going to be judged for the rejection of Jesus. But all will stand before the judge. And he's fair, and he's told us what's going to happen, and what he promises will happen will happen. That's why Christians shouldn't fear judgment. We should honor it. We should teach it in our homes. Our kids should understand that lying, although understandable at times, if I may, is going to be punished. Because Satan, do you remember the title that Jesus gave him last week? He is the father of what? He's the father of lies. Okay, now if we were a more progressive church, I could entitle church like that, who's your daddy? And then we could just talk about lying and truth, but people wouldn't accept that. All right, Genesis 4, 1 1 and 2. Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel, Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. So we learn a few things here. When I was a kid, I used to always wonder, how weird was it when Eve got pregnant? Did she have any idea what was happening to her body? As I've gotten older, I realized that was a naive concept to it because what did God tell her? 
you would have offspring. She obviously had seen the animals reproduce. So she knew the, I mean, I'm sure she didn't understand what was happening when labor kicked in, but she understood that this was going to happen. And she, interestingly enough, says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. I think Eve lived with the reality that she had made choices that should have taken her away. I think she saw God as merciful, right? And God could have punished her and taken away the joy of having children and the promise of this generation. But she saw God's faithfulness and she saw God's mercy, even though within that came judgment. Consequences matter. That's what justice reminds us. That even though you didn't get caught, you know in your heart you should have got caught and we should have gotten punished. Now, I I use this relationship quite a bit and after listening to the, listen, if if you're going to have to listen to me, I have to listen to me. So I'll review what I've taught on Sundays and Wednesdays because if you have to suffer through it, so do I. And I've been, I've been relying heavily on this class between the parent-child relationship. I hope it's not wearing you out because here's what I understand. Whether you've been a parent or not, you've at least been on one side of that equation. So you can relate to the fact of what it was to be a kid. As a child, did you ever punish yourself? Did you ever get overcome with guilt and the sensation that I might as well admit it before I get caught? No. No. All right, we, anyone else? Because I sure as heck did. Because my father always said, I better hear it from you before I hear it from anybody else. So the one time I got spanked in school, I went home and told my dad. I would have expected one of those hallmark moments where my dad looked at me and said, thank you, son, you're becoming a man. Now move on. No, nope. he bent me over his leg and paddled me hard. He said, how many times did the teacher get you? I said, three times. I got three at home. That was the rule. What you got in school, you got at home, and you better find out from us, not from the teacher. But I thought, man, that was kind of a bad deal, Dad. I did exactly what you told me to do. I honored what you asked me to do, and I got spanked anyway. And then he gave me one of the best lessons of my life. He said to me, oh, no, no, the consequences don't go away because you're sorry. It really was very helpful to a kid growing up. Never tell your dad anything is what I learned from that whole story. (laughs) Just don't. All right. Let's talk about the direct expectations of God's judgment because I want you to see that God is gracious even in his judgment. I want you to pick that up tonight when we walk through this. Let's go to the first point. God's provision demands a response. Okay, it's the first place we're at tonight. God's provisions demands a response. In other words, Genesis 1-1 rules. If we don't get Genesis 1-1 down and respect that, then we become our own God. It's inevitable. If we don't see him as creator, we will never give him his his role as ruler. So God plays three roles in the Bible. I was taught this by my doctrine professor in the undergrad. God is creator, God is ruler because he is creator, and God is redeemer. Those are the three hats that God wears throughout the Bible. Creator, ruler, and redeemer. And so when you look at this, the ruler part is where Genesis 1-1 grounds us, reminds us where we came from, and it reminds God's right over us. Chapter, or verse three. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. I want you to notice in verse four, okay, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil, and Abel brought fat portions. 
That gives us a little bit of insight, although there's not a lot of insight, there's gives us a little bit of reason to understand why God reacts the way he does to certain things that happened. But notice the division and difference in the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God that Cain and Abel have with God. Did Adam and Eve ever have to get permission and go through a cleansing process to be in the presence of God? Absolutely not. I want you to hold on to that. That may not mean anything to you unless you've read through the Old Testament when you've talked about the the ceremonial cleansing and the sacrifices and the grain offerings and the thanks offerings and the guilt offerings and everything else, right? You see all those and you think, holy cow, how, how could they ever feel a personal relationship with God when every time they did something, they had to make sure they hadn't messed it up too bad? Then you look in paradise and Adam and Eve walked, you know, one of my favorite hymns, they walked, or he walked with me and he talked with me and he told me I was his own. Well, here's what I want you to get happy about. Although right now Jesus has torn down the curtain and there's no more cleansings and there's no more sacrifices and all of that's been taken care of, it is going to get better when he builds his new kingdom. It's going to go back to what Adam and Eve had, not what Cain and Abel had. Cain and Abel had to bring a sacrifice. They had, it says in verse 3, in the course of time, I'm told that that's a Hebrew idiom. That's a Hebrew statement, a common statement that meant uh, not just in the course of time, like when they came about it, but it actually means at a specific appointed time. When the time was right for sacrifices, God had to instruct them, this is how you and I are going to interact covered in sin. This is what's going to take place. And the principle of giving God the first and best is based on the notion that he's creator. So when it says that uh, Abel gave the fat portions, or Cain gave the fat portions, that seems to indicate that that wasn't the best. Okay? If someone gives you a nice big steak, and let's say, you know, you have this beautiful steak in front of you, and, and someone says, can they have a bite? Your wife or husband says, can you have a bite? And you reach over and cut off a piece of gristle and hand it to them. Probably not going to go so well. They're going to chew on that for 20 minutes and you're going to have finished your steak. And it seems that that was what was offered to God. Was not the best, but this minimal amount. And Israel would have understood something here. They would have seen significance here. Genesis 1-1 resounds throughout the entirety of the Bible. Jesus honored it and we're to honor it. Who's the creator? Continuing in verse 4, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Now, I told you that when you look at this, I want you to be able to sense the mercy of God throughout this. Even on his judgment, he's merciful. Well, there's several jokes I could offer you here. My best is this. You know God's merciful when vegetables are considered good. He gave gave fruit of the ground. It could have been peas. Who knows? That would be a loving God if peas would be acceptable. But he gave these vegetables and he took them. He gave this fruit of the, of the ground. He, he took the best of what God had allowed him to have and Cain did not. And it says, and, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. What do you think the word favor means? What is the connotation of that? There's, there's two ways to look at any word. There's the denotation and the connotation. The denotation is the dictionary meaning. The connotation is how society prescribes it. When you hear the favor of the Lord is on someone, what does that mean? Mercy. Mercy. Acceptable. Acceptable. Honorable. Honorable. Have you ever shown favor to anybody? 
We got Miss Bennett in here. She's a principal. She couldn't admit to this, but I'm sure she's had favorite students some, somewhere along the line. Yeah? Were you ever the favorite student of a teacher? Okay, God is watching. God is watching. So answer my question. How many of us have ever had the experience of being a teacher's pet for at least one year? One year. Okay. <laughs> we both got one year, and that's really good. How did you know you were the teacher's favorite? I got called on a lot. Called on a lot? Did you ever get to do the cool thing where you got to take something down to the principal's office and you got to go to the hall free? Oh, yeah. That was pretty large in charge, wasn't it? I remember I was the AV boy. I got to go get the cart. And I could take an hour and a half to go get that cart. Library and I would hang out. He, uh, he was a Cub fan. I was a Cub fan. We would talk baseball. I would come back. It seemed like I was out for days. My friends were so jealous. So what happens to a favorite? There is privilege. There's comfort. There's honor. When God shows favor on his people, what does he do? There's privilege. There's place. You get it right? There's that feeling of this is just isn't employee-employer. This is two people that love each other. It's two people that are for each other and got each other's backs. I just love the concept of how that feeds into this. When God saw what Abel gave him, he, wanted to f- he favored it. When he saw what Cain gave him, he's like, There's n- this is sterile. You just did the minimum amount you had to do. There is no love here. There, you know, that's, anyway, I can go on and on because there's some passion about our worship. That has to go beyond, God told me to be here and I'm here. Now let's get on with it. Instead it has to be, no, I want to I spend some time celebrating and bragging and loving on my God. I want to I tell him it's good. I, I don't, you know, we, when Heather, when the, when the boys were little, you know, they'd always after dinner, I'd say, what do you say to mom? Thanks, mom, for dinner. And I always go, no, 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 we know what to do. So the three of us would get around her and just give her this massive, almost brutal hug where she'd be slamming into counters and refrigerator and we're all over. And she's like, you guys, I just want to clean the kitchen. We're like, we love you. And there was that expression. So now anytime the boys say thanks, mom, she kind of twitches. But anyway, she, for those moments she loved when those little people would just grab onto her and just hold on and hug her and say, we love you, mom. So worship has the connotation. And I know this is awkward to some people, but worship actually has a word picture associated to it. It is to kiss. You know how when you're holding a little tiny baby, what, why is the natural inclination to kiss it on its little bald head or to kiss its fat little cheeks or just to hold it really close and, it, and hold that moment? Why do we do that? Because they grow up and they start to stink and talk back and disobey. So when you have them there, you're like, I just want to freeze this moment forever. Worship has that connotation of drawing into God affectionately, not just emotionally, but affectionately and purposefully. And so here you have this. There's a basic principle that scripture is its own interpreter. So how do we know why one was accepted and the other wasn't? Hebrews 11.4, is that there in your notes? Okay. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. Why was it better? I have no idea, but what was it? It was better. 1 John 3.12, John wrote, Cain's deeds were evil while his brothers were righteous. That's an interesting expression, isn't it? Evil versus righteous. Why did God show favor to one and not the other? Because for some reason we don't know, it was evil. And one of the greatest implications of this text is that an offering's value is not determined by the act or the actor, 
but by the value placed on it by the recipient. Let me say that again. The impact of this is that we don't get to decide what God needs. We get to respond to what God wants. That's why, uh, I, one person put it, some of the greatest pieces of art are not hanging in museums. They're hanging on refrigerator doors. And we can relate to that, right? Kid brings home a paper. It's got a drawing. You know, I've kept every Father's Day card I've ever received from my boys. I have them in a file down the office. Most people wouldn't assume me to be sentimental, but I'm probably more sentimental than people want to let on. And I look back on some of those cards that they didn't even get dad spelled correctly. As a professor, I like to correct their grammar and help. No, no, absolutely not. I love that. And I can't wait till their dads and I can show them the card they drew me in first grade at daycare after school in crayon, misspelled and and weird and everything else. And now we live in a day where I just take a digital photo of them. They're on my phone. I can go through my phone and see every Father's Day card I ever got. What a world we live in. But you know what? I believe it's true. The best pieces of true art are not hanging in a museum. They're hanging on refrigerator doors across the world. Why? Because the recipient chooses the value of the gift. And God deemed that one person's heart was not his and the other's was. Verse 5 through 7. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Aren't you glad to know that our forefathers were just like us? How many of you can't hide your emotions on your face? Your spouse or your kids tell you, Dad, why are you mad? You're like, I'm not. (laughs) I've seen the look. How many of you can't hide your emotions? How many of you have taught yourself how to? Ladies, raise your hands. God's watching. You know, when your husband goes, what's the matter? You go, nothing. Nothing. Liars. How do we know that? It's a disposition. I love the fact that it says his face was downcast. And then the Lord, verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If, now listen, oh, verse 7. This is, I could ride this pony around the room all night long. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. First time the word sin is used. Okay, important. What is judgment based on? I'm going to back the tape up. If the word's mentioned for the first time and judgment is present when that word is mentioned, what is judgment ultimately going to be about? Sin. You mean it's not about our mistakes? It's not about that one bad moment where I just wasn't thinking? We have to, we have to qualify here that sin is not a mistake. Sin, by definition, is a choice. So he says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So let's process this for a minute. God knows our hearts, so he knows he's angry. And he says, so why is your face so sour? If you do what is right, does that mean that Cain still has the opportunity to do what is right? Does it sound like free will? Remember I told you, that thing is going to keep coming back for the rest of our journey through Genesis. Is there free will or has everything been chosen by God? He says to Cain, you chose this. If you choose to do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is there waiting to have you. But when we sin, do we ever think that it might have us? Or do we not turn the table and think, no, no, I got sin. 
It's, I got it under control. I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to choose what I choose. And I'm the absolute master of this situation. What did God say to Cain? You're about to get taken. Taken by what? The slavery of sin. Now, I know, since you won't play my raise your hand game tonight, I know it's 100% proof that every single one of us knows what it is to be a slave to sin. A sin that we thought we had under control. One little lie, one little cheat, one little sneak, one little deception. We got it, one thing, I won't let it go any further. I have it under control, and then what happens? We open that door, and it is game on, and we're the loser. So when you read verses 6, 7, I want you to understand what judgment is about. Judgment is about sin. It's about a choice we make to withhold from God what God deserves so that we can keep what we want. And if we just let that sink in our minds, if we meditate just a little bit on that, I doubt, and I don't say this like I want you to think I'm so bright. This is years of theologians saying the same things that we're all drawing from. I think all of us would look at sin a little bit differently. Would you give up your relationship with God to be your own God with the, the false presumption that you can, that you're in charge, that you're controlling this? So God gave him a warning, if you do what is right. He says, we are, he says, uh, our Romans, look at Romans 2.15 with me. Paul says, the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness. I alluded to this the last two weeks intentionally to be able to take you through what we studied in Romans last spring. That our conscience knows right from wrong. Now, Paul talks about us suppressing our conscience or basically squeezing it down. When I was a kid working at McDonald's, they would give these little hockey pucks of meat that were just as frozen solid as possible. And then and we'd put them on a grill, and they gave us this thing that looked like a paddle for an air hockey game, and we would put it down for 30 seconds. We'd press the timer. We'd lay all the meat on the grill. In 30 seconds, it would tell us to flip those, and we would flip every single one of those patties on the grill, and then we'd take this hockey puck thing and we'd set it down and press it down and what it did was it drew the heat from the grill through the hamburger and thawed it out but it made that patty compressed and not just as juicy now most of us who cook burgers on a grill we know not to do that don't we you want that patty to sit there and let the heat slowly go through it to keep the juices and everything else but man at mcdonald's it was about kicking those things out as quick as you could that's called searing s-e-a-r-i-n-g There's a term Paul uses about our consciences are seared, pressed down, compacted, so that they're no longer as flexible or as open to the Holy Spirit's leading. So that's why Jiminy Cricket was wrong when I was growing up. You cannot let conscience be your guide because your conscience has been violated by your selfishness. If that's offensive, let me say it again. My conscience has been ruined by my selfishness. I was born with the innate ability to know right from wrong. I have suppressed that ability to the point that some people lose it. It's why the Bible refers to to those of us as stiff-necked or hard-hearted. So one of the ways we pray when we think about sin and we think about judgment and we take it off of ourselves and we put it on the people we love and the people we care about, it's very crucial that you understand that their behavior Our behavior, anyone's behavior, is an indication of their heart. It's not a behavioral issue. 
If the heart doesn't soften and the heart doesn't become warm to God, if the heart isn't open to God, no sermon, no yelling, no signs about going to hell are going to change anybody. So how do we pray? We pray a softening of the heart. We pray that the love of God melts the heart, opens it, makes them aware. You can't make someone hungry, but when they are hungry, you can feed them good things, things that bring life, things that bring hope. So sin is the foundation of judgment, and God is gracious in that he gives us a response to it, and then he responds to it. So let's talk about that for a minute. Our response to God can produce pleasure or rejection. We learn this from their interaction. God in his mercy said, if you choose what is right, I will. If you choose to do what is wrong, sin will. So it either produces pleasure or rejection. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it is impossible to please God. And Hebrews eleven six is one of those verses that every single one of us in the depths of our soul has to either believe or disbelieve. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Then what is faith? Faith is choosing God's best over your desires. That's what faith does every single time. What does God want before what do I want? Not like with regret, not with, uh, regret's not the right word, not with this attitude of I have to or he's going to crush me. No, it's that sacrifice. It's that loving response. It's, it's the mom. I always picture, you know, probably the, the word for sacrifice that comes out more and more is to see my wife was sick with our first baby. And, of course, we didn't know anything that was happening except what doctors were telling us. And I remember Heather got the flu in the eighth month of carrying Alex. And I watched that girl with the flu for three days, not able to take a single thing to appease her body, nothing. We were just pouring fluids in her. And I looked at the doctor and of course, you know, here I am, I'm what, 28 years old and I had no idea about this. I'm like, can't you do anything for her? And he said, your wife has to choose right now to choose the baby over herself. She can handle this. The baby couldn't handle the medicine. And Heather just looked at me in one of those few moments. If you know my wife, she's not an outspoken bossy person. Well, she can be, but not normally. And she looked at me in that doctor's room and she said these words to me, stop it, I'll be fine. And then the flu hit and she wasn't fine. But I watched for three days that girl tough it out for that kid. I always waited for a moment when Alex, kids, he's not this boy, but I always wanted him to mouth off one time so I could tell him the sermon I just poured out on you. (laughs) Buddy, sit down. Let me tell you about those three days of misery your mom went through when she chose the baby over herself. What is faith? It's the same love that motivated Heather as a mom to love her child over herself. We get to choose to love God over ourselves. What did Abel do that Cain didn't? Chose God. When Abel gave the best he had, there's no guarantee there'd be another another harvest. There'd be no guarantee that he'd ever get that fruit or those vegetables back in any other form. But Cain hedged his bets. Cain gave God what he could afford to give, not what he should have given. And faith is giving what you should give. Now, if you think I'm heading toward finances, I'm absolutely not. 
if the Lord's speaking to you about that, you need to consider that too. The first fruits. So when people say to me, well, you know, preacher, there's nothing about tithing in the New Testament. I'm going to tell you one thing. The ownership of God has not been in debate since Genesis 1.1. So any excuse we've given ourselves to say that God doesn't deserve our best and our all negates Genesis 1.1. So it's not even about money. It's about whether or not God is the Lord of your life or just the Savior. Because you can't have him do one and not the other. So our response produces pleasure or rejection. His response to us is to reward faith or bring repentance. God's judgment is designed. Listen to this carefully, okay? This is what's made my tail wag all day to be able to say this. God's judgment is to reward faith or to bring about repentance. His ultimate goal of judgment is not to punish. It's to correct. So when I was a kid and Marilyn Christian said to her four charming children, when your father gets home, we'll talk about this. That was an impending judgment. Because when Dale came home from work, the last thing he wanted to do is find out we'd been brats all day. So that knowing the fact that my dad would come in the house, there's four Christian boys. My little brother Eric is six and a half years younger than me. I'm the third, he's the fourth. The, the gap between all of us, it's almost like he was raised by different parents than the three of us were. But my oldest brother, Steve, my middle brother, Scott, myself, when, it was funny, when dad came home, my mom would always do this routine. We had to all sit on the couch. My dad would come home. He would sit in the chair. My mom would leave the room. I found out later, he already knew all the facts. She had reported that, you know, in her role as CIA, she reported that to the president. And Dale would come home and he would sit there and he would have his cup of coffee and he would just look at all of us and he would say, Steve, what, would, what happened? And Steve would spill the truth. And then I found, and it always bothered me because I was a third child, he would ask me the next question. And I would tell him everything I knew. And there were even moments my dad would say, Mark, you can go. And I was, I lived. I would leave the room like, thank you, Jesus. But I found out he waited to, for Scott to give the third answer. Because you can probably imagine which one of my brothers caused the most problems. If my dad had said to me, I'm disappointed in you, he would tell you to this day, he could make me cry without putting a hand on me. By simply saying, I can't believe you would do that. And that would devastate me. He could take the house and drop it on my brother Scott. He wouldn't flinch. So in those moments when judgment came, I learned a lot from my second older brother, which is funny because he got a daughter just like him, which is the joy of Christmas time at our house. Watching Tessa and Scott deal with each other. They love each other, but they're the same human being in different genders. And I'll hear Scott go, Tessa, who did that? And she's like, I don't know. You were the only one in the room. <laughs> and my dad just looks at Scott, and you can see the smile on his face that comes from the parts of heaven. But judgment when dad came home. Here's what I did learn about my mother and father. If we told them the truth, the penalty was less. Freedom was restricted, but the penalty was less. If we were dishonest with them, the penalty was harsh. Sometimes harsh to the point that it made you wonder, is that fair for what happened? Does this make sense? Now let me ask you the question. When I talk to you about God's judgment, what kind of God do you expect to face? A God who's so irritated he has to deal with it that everybody gets smacked? Or a God who sits down and says, 
Why are you doing this? Because when we offer the grace of a God who has a conversation with you and I, who says, yeah, I know you've got a problem when you get on a computer. I know that that drink that you hide that nobody knows you take every night has become your salvation. I know that you're lying at work to gain an advantage and you don't need to do that. If you trusted me, I will give you more reward than your company can. Church, are you with me? What is judgment about? Is it about punishment or is it about bringing about a heart of repentance? Now, the reason I tell you that I was a a child who could be turned on the word disappointment. I don't want you to think better of me. What do you think my biggest fear about my relationship with God is since I've revealed that to you? That God might look down on me and go, after all I've given you, that's what I get in return, Mark? So I don't fear a God who smacks me. I fear a God who looks at me and goes, "Ah, that would devastate my heart. So when I think of the Lord's Supper and I think of judgment, there's several things, there's several balls you have to keep in the air. One is, it's always going to be about my sin, not about my mistakes. And it's going to be about drawing me to repentance, not throwing me away, not discarding me. So if I can be just a little bit snotty, and it's not my intention, but when when I was thinking about this afternoon, some of people could be perturbed by this. How do you think Christianity portrays God when we stand on corners and yell at people about judgment? Do you think we portray a father who wants to have a conversation? I remember I was 14. Well, no, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was 14 and Scott was 16. And we got the phone call. My dad worked at United Airlines, which was about 20 miles from our house. And we got a phone call when my mom picked it up and she goes, okay. And she goes, here, boys. And she handed the phone. And Scott got the phone. He's like, uh-huh, okay, all right. Handed me the phone. as my dad. And he said, hey, uh, get in the car with your brother and come out to the airport. I need to talk to the two of you. And, I'm, and the whole way out there, we're like, what would you do? <laughs> I didn't do anything. What would you do? I don't know. We got out there, and my dad took us in the break room at United Airlines, and we were sitting around a table, and he looked at me, and he goes, would you help me out? Okay. He said, would you get along with your mom, please? And we're like, what do we do? And he goes, you're, you're making my life miserable. When you come in the house and your mom asks you a question, stop, look her in the eyes and answer. Can you do that? Uh Uh-huh. He went back to work. My dad became less a threat and more of a colleague. Does that make sense? Because what he said to me was, your mother just wants to have a conversation with you, and you walk in. It's true. We'd walk in the house. How are you? Good, good. Jeez, Mom. She's like all day long waiting for her babies to come home, and we treat her like an inconvenient truant officer. And my dad said, help me out. And we had a conversation. And that changed my relationship with my father. Then when my dad called me and said, hey, I want to have a conversation with you, you know what I didn't worry about? I didn't worry about getting spanked anymore. I got worried about him. Or I had a conversation with someone who said, here's how you repent. Tell your mom you're sorry. He used to ask us all the time, when was the last time you thanked your mom for doing your laundry? Oh, no. You know what didn't happen for two weeks? No laundry got done. And all of a sudden, my mom, I found out later, my mom gave in. She couldn't handle it anymore. She told my dad to drop dead, and she went and did all of her laundry. And I loved my mom that night. I hugged her and thanked her and told her I was sorry, and it produced what? Repentance. If I can redeem judgment for the church, what I want to redeem it is this way. 
Abel gave God his best. Cain refused to. And Cain had a chance to fix it. The judgment of God comes when we won't repent. The judgment of God doesn't just come because we sinned. It's we sinned and we walked away saying, I don't care. I only care about me. So when my dad looked at me, almost like I was an adult, and said, would you help me out? I was like, yeah. But I had to repent to honor him. And judgment is about repentance more than it is about penalty. All right, we'll fly through the rest of these at a quicker pace for sure. Our response to God brings a judgment of forgiveness or penalty. Our response to God brings a judgment of forgiveness or penalty. Verses 8 and 9. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Where did that idea come from? It's the first murder, right? Well, I don't, think Cain, I don't know if Cain and Abel saw um, the animals being killed for the skins that mom and dad wore. But maybe, maybe they saw mom and dad create skins for them too. But there's one of these questions that's kind of left out there in the ether, and that is, how did, how did he know to kill him? Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> okay, I promise you I won't berate you with Dale Christian stories all night long, but I know I'd never say that to my dad, because I'd be with my brother. I mean, look at the snark. Did he know where his brother was? Absolutely. And so he asked the fundamental question. I don't know. What business is it of mine? And Genesis 4-8 records the first murder in history of human beings. So why do you know not to go in a dark alley or large crowds or when there's a lot of hectic? You know, you've seen, we've seen a lot of up, uh, upheaval in our nation. And they'll show pictures of the streets where all of a sudden... Like something will get thrown and you'll see people just with panic looked on their face running away. And there's a part of me that goes, why were you there to start with? Now you're freaking out and running around, running into cameras and going crazy. Why were you there? But how do we know not to go into dark places? Well, no matter how we know, just think about the fact that Abel would have had no reason to believe that going out in the field with his brother was anything but safe. So... Once again, sin spirals us toward a selfishness that goes even beyond anything we could imagine. 1 John 3, 12, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. We foreshadowed verse 12 a little bit earlier because I said evil and righteous, interesting words. What it points out was Cain was not furious at God, he was furious at Abel. Because Abel received the favor of God rather than what he received, which was, it was the, and the first human lie, I, I hadn't thought about this, so I read it in a commentary, the first human lie in all of scripture is where? Where's your brother? That's the first human lie. I don't know. Yeah, you do. And the fact that you think you can lie to God, wouldn't Cain have known when God said, why are you so down? Why is your face so forlorn? Why, you know, or we might say to our kids today, why the attitude? And he says, I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? And what's the answer to that question? This is why society is a mess. Am I my brother's keeper? 
the proper answer is what? Yes. What has society said? Everybody does their own thing. Everybody's responsible for themselves. Mind your own business. And that's why we're the mess we're in. And I'm not just talking about our generation, but all generations. This is what's permeated. Verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You ever read the book, Crime and Punishment? Anybody read that in college or high school? No? It's a fascinating book. That verse, Genesis 4.10, was Dostoevsky's motivation for writing Crime and Punishment. Your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it no longer yields its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Remember, it's mentioned here, what did Cain do for a living? He was a shepherd, right? A herder? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the farmer, okay. So you look here and you say, yep, I'm sorry, I got those reversed. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and what will the ground not do for you anymore? Produce. Which is really ironic. Why do you think he held back his crops? Pardon? Yeah, he held back, it was greed maybe. Held him back and said, I'm not going to give you my best because I need these for who? For me, what was one of the greatest punishments of his keeping things from God? He lost the one thing he was trying to protect. Do you think that that system of God's justice still works today? What did Jesus say? If you want to learn how to live, you have to die. You want to, want to be free, you have to become a, a servant. You keep things from God, guess what you lose? The things you keep. They just don't have any satisfaction or any value anymore. So so you're under a curse. Verses 13 through 16, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. (laughs) Wah. Seriously, your brother's dead. You lied to God. You rejected the opportunity of mercy. And then you're complaining to God that he's too harsh. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. That's a hard verse to understand. Well, no, let me pardon. That's a hard verse to accept. Abel didn't get this chance, but Cain Cain takes him out. He says he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then they put... Uh, Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And this is one of those passages the Bible never mentions again, and we're left to speculate what was it. What marked him in such a way that people knew, don't, leave this guy alone. Uh, My mom told me it was tattoos, but that was a long time ago. That was a different generation. She honestly did one day, and I remember my dad going, Marilyn, because she thought she would embed that in us. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, any of you read East of Eden? Steinbeck's book? How did you all graduate high school? Okay, you did, thank you. And you know where he got this, right? Do you know what what Nod means? Wandering. Was it named the land of Nod before him, or was it named because of him? But it's called the land of wandering, east of Eden. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. 
Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. So God calls him, and he said, this is more than I can bear. There's no remorse toward his family. There's no remorse toward uh, Abel. There's none of that. There's this selfishness that permeates all of it, which goes all the way back. I beat that horse to death, so I'll quit. But you guys get the point. What we're seeing here is Cain's inability. So, it's been said that the same sun that softens wax hardens clay. Okay? This is a, an old statement. The same sun that will soften a piece of wax will harden a piece of clay. And God's judgment brings repentance or it brings a hardening of the heart. So, in the story of Moses and Pharaoh, it's often brought up that it said the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's what the Bible says. And then in the same text, verses later, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. Which was it? It's both. Well, how can it be both? Because when God says stop it, your reaction is either, that's my father, I'm going to stop it, or who are you to tell me what to do? And what God did was God sent Moses to go into Pharaoh and give him the opportunity Do you believe that Pharaoh could have repented of what he was doing and honored God by letting the people go before the 10 plagues were done? Is that a probability? Is that a possibility? It was absolutely a possibility. Did you know that the 10 plagues, you know, the one that Charlton Heston brought in, (laughs) do you know that all of those 10 plagues, if you study them consistently, were all an attack against the gods of Egypt, every single one of them? It wasn't just 10 ideas God had. What he did was he deconstructed every God that the Egyptians held holy. He brought them to their knees. And at the end, when all 10 gods were diminished, what did Pharaoh say to to Moses? Go. Go. Go worship your God. Go. But it took those 10. And it said that God hardened his heart, and then it said Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And what's the answer? The same sun that softens wax hardens clay. When God brings judgment to light, it's not to punish. It's to produce repentance. And those who refuse to repent are then what? My, my, promise you, one last story. I threw a rock and hit my brother in the head. He, He had punched me in the throat and ran away. He was faster and bigger, so I picked up a rock. I have a better arm than he ever had, and I dropped him. Back of his head, he's bleeding. My mom sees it. She comes out. She grabs both of us by the back of the neck. She stands as a foot apart, and then she says to me, you tell him you love him. The same sun that softens wax hardens clay. Love my mom. There was no chance this side of heaven. I was telling Scott I loved him after he punched me in the throat. And we stood there in the yard. My mom's bawling. I'm furious. Scott's threatening me that when we get, we shared a bedroom, that when we went to bed at night, I would not see the morning. And I'm supposed to look this creep in the face and tell him I love him. I would tell him I love him in a heartbeat today. At that young age, I was so furious that my love for my mom could not overcome my hatred in that moment. Can you relate? Have you ever had those moments where you know exactly what God is warning you to turn from, but sin has captured you so deeply, so much anger, resentment, and fear that you can't do the right thing. 
So isn't God merciful? Isn't God merciful? So Dale comes home from work. <laughs> we go into the living room. My dad asks what's happened. I say, my dad said, you disobeyed your mother. Uh-huh. Why? She told me to tell him I loved him. And my dad answered this way. She did what? He's one of us. My dad said, are you sorry you hurt him? I said, yeah. Scott, are you sorry you hurt Mark? Uh Uh-huh. My dad said, stop it. And we went our separate ways. But in that moment, my heart, I remember that as a kid to this day. I'm not proud of that story, church. There's a part of me that goes, I'm capable of that. I'm capable of being so mad that I'll take the punishment coming to get what I want done. Go to chapter 5. Please. That was kind of a command, wasn't it? <laughs> Go to 5. Genesis 5, 1 through 32. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam, and that means nothing to an American Western mind. Genealogies. Some of us know family trees. My mom spends a lot of time on that. She's so happy. She's sure that when she passes on, we're going to fight for over that book. <laughs> I'm not so sure. But she spent a lot of time figuring out where we all came from. Genealogies don't mean much in the Western culture because land in our country has only been possessed by Americans for over 225 years. It was possessed by other people, but we won't talk about that in our history books. But we Americans came in, we squatted the property, we overwhelmed the people who really owned it, and we took it from them. So we don't have this heritage of who owns a piece of land. Now, maybe some of you do. Maybe that piece of property has been in your family for 150 years. Maybe not. But if you go across the pond, they can tell you who's owned that for thousands of years. And they have papers that detail it. So when you go into an Eastern worldview and you read a genealogy, they're boasting about people that they came from. Their blood is in me. So what uh, Moses did was he recorded uh, in Genesis 1, or 5, 1 through 32, he recorded this person came. And I'm just going gonna, gonna to cherry pick this chapter. I'm just going to read pieces of it. And I'm going to see if you can pick out a theme in chapter 5. Because all we're going to do is look at the theme of chapter 5. In the book of the genealogy of Adam, in the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Genesis revisited, Genesis 1 and 2. He created them male and female, blessed them, and called them mankind in the day they were created. Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And he begot Seth. The days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. Okay, stop. How long did Adam live? Got to read the genealogy in an Eastern mindset. He was 130 when he had Seth. He had Cain and Abel before that. Seth was the replacement for who? Abel. He was 130 years old when he had his third son. At least the third son we're aware of. He lived how many years after that? 800. All right, math majors, how, how old was he? 930 years. And then it says, so that all the days, verse 5, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he? Seth lived 105 years, and he begat Enosh. And he begat Enosh, Seth lived 807 years. Quick math. 912. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he? Look at the end of verse 11. So the days of Enos were 905 years, and he? Verse 14. So the days of Canaan were 910 years, and? 
and the verse, the last three words of verse 17. Every, the last three verses of 20. Everybody's dying. That's a great line. And then we get down to verse 23. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. And then after he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived six or 782 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Now, what's interesting is Methuselah dies the year of the flood. So we always ask this question in Bible college. Did he die in the flood? Or did he die the day before the flood? Now, he has a son. Methuselah's son is named... Or no, his dad. Enoch lived 69, or 65 years and begat Methuselah. Verse 23. So the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There are three people in the scriptures, pop quiz. Three people in the scripture who the Bible doesn't say died. Who are they? Enoch, I just gave you one. Elijah. Moses. Died, they don't, it says they're, they're gone. But even the death of Moses, if the word dead is used, is explained a little bit significantly. Elijah got in a chariot and was gone. Enoch walked with God and he was gone. There's something about faith here. Enoch has a son, Methuselah. He lives 969 years. He dies the year of the flood. If I understand the genealogy correctly, his his great-grandchild, Methuselah's great-grandchild, would have the name Noah. Chapter 5 is teaching us one thing. People started dying. Now, was death part of paradise? Talks about the longevity of men. Why did Methuselah live 969 years? Would he be the oldest person to ever walk the earth? Why did he live 969 years and now people live into their 80s and 90s and we give them high fives? Bacon. Bacon, yes. (laughs) Because we know after the flood, God limited the age of mankind to what? 120 years. And every now and then you'll see someone creep up into the 105 and 110 used to be back in the olden days, Charles Kuralt would put him on the CBS Morning News and talk to him. And there was that Fred Willard dude, right? Willard, what was his last name on the NBC Today show? Willard Scott. That dude would have some party and parade. And then Paul Harvey, I always remember him. He would do something. He'd always have the Centennial Club at lunch. He'd always announce someone who lived 100 years. We celebrate those things. It doesn't happen now. Now, I'll be honest with you. Does anybody want to live to 969 years in the world we live in today? Uh, check, please. I'm ready to go. <laughs> I want this meal over. But you see here, the key is he lived and then he died. He lived and then he died. He lived and then he died. So here's a few things we have to think of. We have to come to grips with life. This is what chapter 5 is is pointing us toward. We have to come to grips with life. That our lives are not going to last forever. The Bible says there's a time at which appointed that each man must, must die. Now, death is not a punishment to Adam and Eve. I mean, it is, but it wasn't. By walking by faith, death is being in the presence of God. Paul says it's better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. So we look at it and say, because of the repentance and mercy of God, even in judgment, think about that. If God is going to judge the saved for the good things they've done in the kingdom, 
Isn't that unjust in and of itself? Yeah, I mean, think about it. You, you break a mirror. You're throwing the ball in the house like you're not supposed to. You break a mirror and you help your dad and mom pick it up and your folks thank you for helping them. There's a party that goes, that doesn't make any sense. I broke it. I created the problem. I created the mess. I created the cost of the mirror and the replacement of it. I, replaced, I caused all of that and you're thanking me for helping you. That's the mercy of God. That at the end of judgment, he's not going to look on our sin, but because of Jesus Christ, he's going to say, I want to thank you for your contributions to building my kingdom and glorifying my name. That's a good God, isn't it? So what do we do with the... Liv, you've probably read the poem. I don't know who wrote it, but it was brilliant. It's given preachers a chance to preach on Memorial Day over and over and over. It's called Dealing with the Dash. My, my tombstone one day will say, 1965, Dash, whenever I'm out. But life is defined by the dash. What happened between 1965 and the day Jesus calls me home? That's what I want you to get out of chapter 5. You have to come to grips with life. You don't have it forever, and what you have is a testimony to God while you have it. Second thing, come to grips with death. I'm so inevitably and forever grateful to my grandfather who lived into his 90s and... uh, Buried my grandmother, and on the day of my grandmother's funeral, uh, he passed away that afternoon. He saw her to the door, and like a gentleman, he waited till she crossed the door. I believe with all my heart, God answered that old man's prayers. He was a stubborn little Irishman, and I bet he just wore God down. But honestly, we buried her on a Wednesday. She died on a Sunday. We buried her on Wednesday morning. We came back from the funeral. He didn't go to the funeral. And we came in the house, and Mom said, Grandpa wants to see you two boys, because Scott and I stayed and got chairs from the church so people could have a place to sit around the house while we were just grieving together. And we came in the house, and she said, Grandpa wants to see you. And we put the chairs in the garage, and we walked in the bedroom. My Grandpa turned around and looked at us, and he smiled, and he said, Thank you. And he laid on his side. We went back out, and two minutes later, the home care nurse walked out and said, He's gone. I want to go that way. I always tease my grandpa. He said, how do you want to die? And we, this is where conversations we have in our family, so it might explain me. But he said, how do you want to die? I said, grandpa, I want to play golf. I want to come home, eat a sandwich, take a nap, and never wake up. And he just smile at me. Deep down inside, I'm that selfish. And I've told Heather, I got to go first. Because the only value I will bring to her life is my life insurance policy. So <laughs> she'll be blessed when I'm gone. But I'm not, I don't want a hero's death. I don't want to have some grand statement. I I want to go to sleep, just like Paul explains it, fall asleep and wake up in the presence of Jesus. But do you know how many of us are so afraid to have a conversation about dying? The judgment of God should awaken you to the mercy and hope of repentance, not the fear of dying, not the fear of wondering. Do you know how many Christians truly don't know that Jesus can be trusted? And the way you find that out is about the way they speak about death. They're scared to die because they, what if I'm not good enough? You're never going to be good enough. If you're basing your religion on how well you do, you're out, disqualified. And come to grips with life after death. And he died, and he died, and he died, and she died, and we die, and yay. But when it says Enoch walk with God, this is the first, this is the first statement of resurrection, of afterlife. 
Where did Enoch go? People have said, and in fact, I've said it in sermons, but I stand corrected. What I've been told was there's really no sign of resurrection in the New Testament or in the Old Testament until Jesus arrives. Maybe that's why Ecclesiastes is such a dour book. If he believes this is all you get and it's over, then what, what, what good is it? Even if you have a great life for a season of time, no one has a great life forever. And then we get old and we start to fall apart and we die. But it says here that Enoch walked with God. Moses went with God. Elijah went. Where did they go? They had to go somewhere because it wasn't called death. So keep that in mind. You have to deal with life, you have to deal with death, and you have to deal with life after death. Now we'll go to chapter six, and I just want to introduce this concept really quickly. And if we don't get it all finished, uh, we'll be back. Chapter six, one through seven. When it, when, it, when it came to pass, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, okay, pause real quick here. I'm going to talk about giants, sons of gods, and daughters of men. And you're going to want to raise your hands and go, what? Michael and I will be here next week and we'll deal with it. We're going to have a Q&A next week. Michael's going to come fix all my mistakes, tell you how I blew it. We're going to have a conversation. There's a bunch of questions from the last week. You'll have a chance to ask questions next week. But I want you to know I'm not glossing over this because I don't want to explain it. I'm not going to explain it in four minutes. And so if you come back next week, we'll deal with it. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord God said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who, uh, who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and with every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually." And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and had grieved and was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy the man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both men and beasts, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Let's talk about God's principles real quick. There's the principle of existence. The principle of existence in theology simply means this. We are here for a purpose. That purpose is defined by God, and that is purpose is under God's approval. We're not here for our own glory and our own passion. So when God looked down and saw that mankind had nothing but evil in the intent of his heart, it was not God's purpose. Was God wrong for looking down and saying, I'm done? No. We exist for God's pleasure. So God's decision shows us the principle of existence. There's also the principle of dependence. Man is dependent on God for everything. Man could make nothing that did not come from God. There's nothing we create or think that is not based on what God provided for us in creation. So we need God. And if God pulls out everything you're going to see in the flood, when God pulls back all of his provisions, man is a mess. There's a principle of obedience. This goes back to Genesis 1.1. It's God's creation, and when we function in accordance with his mandates, there's blessing, and when we choose not to, then the favor of God is removed. There's a principle of consequence. God's commands cannot be disregarded. Or as I was taught as a child, you can't tell God no and when. You can't tell God no and when. As a coach, I always tell the little boys, because little boys are funny. If they're up four to two in the first inning, they are celebrating. And I always remind them, the only score that matters in any game is the score at the end of the game, not the one in the middle. 
And how many people have thought, I got God beat. My life's working out perfectly. I don't obey anything in the Bible, and look how well I'm doing. But they don't understand that this whole concept of the, con- the principle of consequences must be honored. Now let's look at God's perspective from verse 5. When God saw the wickedness of man was great and that every intent of the thought of his heart was evil continually, before we consider what God saw, we should note to teach us that God saw it. God is not disinterested. He's not removed. And what God saw was increasing disobedience, verse 5. Every intent of the thought of their hearts, it was increasing. If you want to know what that looks like, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul describes the process by which man trades God away and what happens to mankind when God is no longer necessary. God also perceived increasing deviance. That's what the sons of God and the daughters of men is going to indicate. We'll talk about that again next week. Just want to tease you with it a little bit. This increasing deviance, this downward spiral of behavior where just, I mean, you see it in our culture today. People are shooting people. People are abusing people. People are taking, taking women and turning them, or men, even both, and turning them into sex slaves, holding them against their will for sexual pleasure. A deviance that no human being would ever think this is okay. And then there's increasing destruction. If you jump all the way down to verse 12 in your Bibles, he looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Without God, culture and humanity cannot sustain itself. Now, is that a political statement? You bet your boots it is. We take God away. Now, you and I know that the government can't make us It can never stop us from praying, never stop from reading the Bible, never stop from serving the Lord. The government can't stop us from doing this. But some of us wave a white flag every time the government says, I don't think that's a good idea. They're going to make us stop. They can't. Do you know how you can't take prayer out of school? Try to stop somebody from praying. You can't. We don't need to make it a national movement. Just tell your kids, pray. The light of Christ will penetrate the darkness. Now, if if you have to be on your knees with your hands folded and your eyes closed so everybody notices you, that you've misunderstood prayer. You try to stop someone from praying. Look at Stephen in Acts chapter 7. They were killing him because he believed in God. How did he spend his final moments? Praying for their souls. No government intervention can stop the faithful people from obeying. You take God out of the equation, though, and what happens? Everyone starts using everyone for their selfish purpose, and Cain continues to kill Abel. And then the thing I want to leave you with tonight, and this is where the judgment of God comes from, It's found in verse 6. The Lord was sorry. God has emotions. And God can feel grief and sorrow over our behavior. So if you wonder why I tell all these endless stories about my mom and dad, it's because I learned more about God from my parents than I ever learned in church. Because now as I look back on it as an adult, I see that what they were teaching me was consequences and loving them and loving my brothers and not being selfish and living in community. And all the stuff I teach as theology, I got to experience in home, good and bad. <laughs> good examples and bad examples. But at the end of the day, the judgment of God is to bring about repentance to a group of people that know his love and know his mercy. Next week, Michael will be on stage. Come with your questions. We'll put them up on the board. And we're going to kind of fill in some of these gaps as we proceed. And then in two weeks, we'll get to the flood and some of the things we learned from the flood about who we are and who God is. 
and uh, how that all takes place, how salvation works. All right, thank you. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.